Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel. I'm joined by Bruce Feldman. And first, we want to just hit on the initial playoff rankings that came out Tuesday night. This is our first chance to weigh in on it. How surprised were you about A&M ahead of Washington at number four? I was a little surprised, to be honest, because, you know, I know you and I have bickered about, you know, I felt like, hey, if it's a power five team and they haven't lost a game, I think that that's a big piece in it. And whereas, yeah, A&M has played more teams that have winning records. It's not like, I mean, yeah, they have a good win at Auburn. Well, Washington has a nice win at Utah. And I think when I look at the second best win, of the, but comparing them, I think the way they just destroyed Stanford by 40 points, and Stanford, by the way, is now 5-3, and three, uh, holds up as well as anything A&M has, and A&M has a loss. I thought that it was interesting that when Kirby Hocutt was defending it on the conference call afterward, he said, you know, they've got big wins or good wins at Auburn, which we would agree. And then the second one he mentioned was Arkansas at a neutral site. And I'm thinking, you know, have you seen Arkansas lately? You know, they lost 56-3 to Auburn. If that's what they're holding up. Now, A&M fans are very defensive about this, and they just keep pointing out, you know, they're, they're, you can tell this will be their season-long rallying cry if they keep winning. Hey, our only loss was the number one team. But it was by 19 points. Should they be getting credit just for playing the game just because that game was on the schedule? Yeah, it wasn't like they were blown off the field in the game for four quarters. I mean, they were actually leading into the, you know, midway through the third quarter. So on that front, I, I see one thing. Here's the interesting thing to me. You know, we've talked about this a lot. Washington has a terrible non-conference schedule, three bad opponents. Rutgers, who's, who's pretty woeful this year, is probably the best of the three. A&M's non-conference is not very strong, especially when you consider one of the game, uh, the one game that looked like it was going to be tough going into the year of the four. UCLA is three and five, and UCLA may, may be lucky to win five games this season. Yeah, now that gets into should they does UCLA is that UCLA team considered to be that they played in the first game when Josh Rosen was fully healthy was that a better team than UCLA now? It was, but I mean, how much different are we talking about? It's still it's still going to be a five or four win team though. Because you could also say, well, that Auburn team that A and M beat hadn't really figured things out yet. Um, you know, they mentioned he specifically mentioned Penn State and why Penn State is so high. That Penn State is a much improved team from earlier in the season, and I think that's good. I think the committee should um, take the fact that the season is fluid into account, but it can get um, you can be a little inconsistent about that. You know, my big takeaway from this was that, and it's only one week, and we're and, you know it's very limited. Um, comments we got from Kirby Hoka. We did it's not like he talked about every team in there. Every single team, no matter what you asked him, it always came back to strength of schedule. That was the defense of every single selection you asked him about, which I felt was a little different from Jeff Long. Yes, of course they talked about strength of schedule, but you remember last year how you were you were so furious that Ohio State kept staying up there even though they didn't look particularly great and they hadn't played a strong schedule. And that seemed to be a pretty clear example of the eye test, you know, and I would say the same of, of several other teams. I don't, didn't see much example of eye test. The one that surprised me the most, actually, even, maybe even more than Texas A&M, was seeing Nebraska at 10. Um, and then I looked, you know, Nebraska had a close loss at Wisconsin, which, again, that's not bad. When you look at Nebraska's resume, and I, we talked about this a, a week ago, and maybe it was a week ago. 
that their best win was at you know a, a Northwestern team that's now four and four. Actually, their best win was when they blew out what is now a six and two Wyoming game opponent. Um, but I still look at it and go, eh, I don't see a top ten team here. Am I crazy? I mean, there's five Big Ten teams in the top twelve. Well, they clearly have a lot of respect for the Big Ten. I do think that was a little high for Nebraska. You know, that'll be moot one way or the other when they play at Ohio State this week. I thought you were going to say the one that surprised me the most of the whole uh, thing, West Virginia, all the way down at number 20. We know the Big 12 has been down this year. But at least West Virginia played and beat a decent BYU team out of conference and had looked really good up until that Oklahoma State loss last week. And that even that wasn't like they lost to Iowa State. So uh, I would have liked to have heard a justification about that. That seemed, I'm not saying they should have been top 10, but that seemed unduly low. Let me ask you this. So, you know, I've said this on whatever media I've done, including Joel Klatt's show last night. Uh, take it all with a grain of salt. It's the first rankings. Last year, Oklahoma was ranked 15th. They made the playoff. The year before that, Ohio State was actually ranked 16th, and they won the playoff. So... Of the teams ranked, starting out now, ranked 12 or lower, give me the three that you think actually have a realistic shot to sneak in the playoff. 12 or lower. Yeah, so that would be Penn State, who's 6-2, and two, LSU, who's 5-2, and two, who I think has the most upside of all of these because of their backloaded schedule. Maybe Colorado at 15? We don't want to get too carried away yet uh, over this Cinderella story. So I don't know if they can pull it off, but the path is there because they, they're already 15. They still have games remaining against uh, Utah, who's, in, who's right behind them at 16, Washington State, who's ranked, and then if they win the division and they do control their destiny and make it to the championship game, you're probably going to play 11-1 and or maybe even 12-0 and Washington. So the chance is there for them to really – pile up a pretty impressive resume before it's over. Whether they could actually win all those games, I don't know. You know, I think if you're looking in that range, LSU is definitely the one that sticks out, but that's going to be a, uh, a tough path. I mean, they've still got Alabama, Florida, and A&M left. Yeah, I agree. But they're the one team with a real springboard there. I look at Oklahoma with two losses, and I think it's a stretch to think Oklahoma as a 10-2 as a Big, Big 12 champ can leapfrog enough teams. I, I just don't know it. I just Because I don't see where, if you're going to have a two-loss champ, it's probably not going to be them. If you're going to have a two-loss champ, I mean, getting back to Colorado, because I, I, let's jump in this one question. I want your thoughts on this. A 12-1 a and one Washington as the Pac-12 champ versus an 11-1 and one Texas A&M. I think, te- I think Washington would get in. But I'm not so I sure. I think so, but I think that the message they sent yesterday makes it harder to be sure of that because, you know, they, they clearly are going to hold that. You know, Washington loses a game and wins the conference. The only difference between them and Baylor two years ago, who got left out at 11-1, and would be that championship game. They still have that soft non-conference schedule working against them. Um, so, you know, I think ultimately the first rankings were – interesting but it seems like you know i was just talking about this with ralph russo on his podcast two years ago three of the top four teams in the first rankings were sec west teams you knew they were going to knock each other off the next year this past year last year 2015 
you had that crazy thing where there were four undefeated Big 12 teams left that were all going to play each other. So you knew that part was going to change. This one, you know, we can put out all the crazy scenarios we want about Colorado or LSU or whoever. End of day, you know, Alabama is 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 going to have to play a lot worse than they have to this point to not make the playoff. Clemson, frankly, could lose a game down the stretch here, and if they still win the ACC championship, they're probably going to be in the playoff. I think we feel like Michigan or Ohio State is going to be in the playoff. So I don't know if there's going to be as much volatility down the stretch here as there has been the past couple seasons. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I mean, we say that, and then there will be some kind of curveball that will come up soon. There will so. be curveballs. So what you're saying is your preseason bad pick of Virginia Tech, if they went out and somehow knock off uh, – Clemson in the Big Ten and the ACC title, they can't sneak in? They could, and that would be interesting. Although I think it would be less likely of them to sneak in than it would be to put the committee in a position where they have to decide, are we going to take... Them or, or an 11-1 Louisville? Well, no, the scenario here, if it, Clemson goes undefeated or Virginia Tech beats them, you'd be looking at a situation where you've got an 11-2 ACC champ, a 12-1 Clemson team, and an and 11 and 1, 1 Louisville, Louisville team. Yeah. That would be, I'm, I'm kind of silently, quietly rooting for something like that. Not necessarily that exact scenario, but. You'd I rather have it in North Carolina because you do not want those Virginia Tech fans to go, you had us at 3 and 9 in the preseason. I did not have them at 3 and 9. I had them at 5 and 7, I believe. Oh, okay. Excuse me. We get things wrong. Um, I had UCLA winning the South. How's that looking right now? Yeah, oh, believe me, I didn't think Auburn was going to be very good, so I'll take one in the back on that one. All right, so we got a huge LSU-Alabama game this week. Why don't we get to our guest? Okay, Stu, it is ESPN and SEC Network's Kaylee Hartung. She uh, works this season with the legend Brent Musburger and the almost legend Jesse Palmer. Uh, Kaylee's a Baton Rouge native, and so I thought it'd be an ideal time to have her on here, given this weekend's huge Bama LSU game. Kaylee, you've seen a ton of big games, I'm sure, in Tiger Stadium. How wild do you think that this atmosphere is going to be this weekend? This Saturday is going to be Baton Rouge at its best. Uh, I, it's probably a good thing that I don't need to be in Baton Rouge this weekend because if I did, I'd be staying at a hotel. My parents don't have any room left at their house. They're, they've got friends coming in. They're throwing a party. I mean, that's the kind of weekend it is when everybody wants to be there. Everybody's looking for a place to stay. And, oh, my gosh, Death Valley is going to be incredible on Saturday night. So you've spent quite a bit of time around the program since Ed Orgeron took over for less miles. And uh, I believe you covered a couple of his games. This is a situation. It's so unique. It could have gone either way, right? I mean, the team could have, could have folded it in when their head coach got fired. And it seems like it's gone in the exact opposite direction. Why do you think he's been able to have such a great effect on them? The players have responded to him in such a genuine and positive way. And I think we've all had experiences in our lives where it's just time for a change. And I believe that's how a lot of these players felt. And they're all very quick to tell you how special Les Miles is to them and that they miss him and that they're sad for the way things worked out for him. But Ed Ogeron, and you guys know as well as I do, is such a unique character and he brings such an energy 
And everything that's made him, Bruce, as you well documented in your book, an incredible recruiter is what connects him with the kids. And that has so much to do, I think, with the way that they've responded to him. And it's, there are changes just when you're in the building, the way the day is run, the way a game week is run. He's made some changes that the players have responded really positively to. He's shortened practices. They are very efficiently run. When Les Miles would script out a practice that would take seven pages, Ed Ogeron has a practice script that's one page front and back on Mondays. I mean, that's just an example. You know, yesterday, um, they practiced for 40 minutes and it was one-on-one drills. It was first team versus first team, live game action type of play when they are running plays. And as a result, the players feel like their time is being maximized and they're spending more time in the film room. But what that's equaling also is a very healthy LSU team at this point in the season. And Tommy Moffitt, who's the head strength and conditioning coach at LSU, a legend in that world he was telling me the other day he doesn't believe in his 17 years at LSU that this team has ever been this healthy at this point in the year and I think a lot of that has to do with just a a different approach in the way that the players times managed and I think they love it that's an interesting point uh on Monday you were able to visit with Leonard Fournette he's obviously going to be you know a big focal point of this game where we're talking about a guy who was leading the Heisman race, then got completely shut down by Alabama last last year. They got dominated in the trenches. What was his mindset like as you know he comes out and has a big Ole Miss game, and then all of a sudden, I, I guess he's tried to get into better condition you now that he's you know back in in the routine again. Was he looking at this like, okay, get on my back, I'm going to carry this whole state to a victory, or how like how is he approaching it? So there's a couple different ways I think that he's looking at it. From an X and O standpoint, I know that he doesn't think he can or should try to win this game by himself. And I don't think that that's LSU's approach in this at all. And I'll get to that from a, more of an X and O standpoint in a second. But I don't doubt that there's anybody on this team who wants this win more than Leonard Fournette. His want to in this moment is off the charts. And Ed Ogeron actually mentioned today on the SEC coaches teleconference that Leonard has already addressed the team this week and shared his feelings, you know, privately with them. Unfortunately, I didn't get that kind of access. But but in my conversation with Leonard this week, you know, he's not a Leonard's a team guy, you know, for all I've tried so many times. And I think we've all experienced this in in interviewing star athletes. You know, you want so badly to get them to talk about themselves at times and and all they want to do is talk about everybody else. And that was very much the scenario I found myself in with Leonard earlier this week when I asked him what he remembered from last year's game and then asked how he would use that as motivation in this one. And he said, you know, it's not just about me. You know, last year, this team was 7-0, LSU was, and just gets crushed by Alabama. And everybody on the team remembers what that feels like. Sure, Leonard Fournette remembers his 31 yards on 19 carries and how frustrating that was. But everybody on the team had their own versions of disappointment and frustration through that game. And no one on this LSU team knows what it feels like to beat Alabama. So they're all hungry for it in their own ways. And Leonard really tried to capture that in his conversation with me to make sure everyone understands he's not the only one who is absolutely starving for 
the feeling of what it could be like to beat Alabama. It was interesting hearing fullback J.D. Moore made the statement this week that he believes LSU's offensive approach this year is straight up smarter than it was a year ago. He said that he felt like last year there were times when Alabama knew exactly what LSU was trying to hit them with. And he said, you know, if they're putting eight or nine guys in the box, it doesn't make a lot of sense to try to run it right at them. So they want to spread them out with the passing game. And Ed Ogeron has said that Danny Etling is so important, obviously, to the success of this game, but it can't be all about Leonard Fournette. Danny Etling has got to have the game of his life in this instance, take care of the football, let a thankfully healthy offensive line in front of him protect him and see what they can do to try to spread this Alabama defense out and not give them opportunities to capitalize on as we've seen them. How many defensive touchdowns do they have now? Is it still 12? Is that the number? Yeah, non-offensive touchdowns, yes. And the record is 14, so (laughs) it tells you how – how ridiculous this has been so far. Yeah, exactly. Kaylee, you also have great connections at Alabama. I remember seeing you on the field before the national championship game last year. There's usually a fortress. You seem to be able to have cracked that fortress. What's something about this year's team that maybe has surprised you? Because a lot of us thought they might take a step back um, with such youth on offense, especially with a true freshman quarterback. And it's been the opposite. This team has been more dominant through eight games than probably any of Saban's teams there. I admittedly sort of been more surprised. Um, Gosh, I was, I feel kind of silly that I was so wrong from the beginning of the season. And and I'll explain why I was down there the first day of fall camp. And I was talking with Jonathan Allen, you know, who has turned out to be just outstanding this season and you knew he was going to be a great player this season because he was last year but the big question leading in was who's going to take over the leadership role that the entire defensive line played last year with Ashawn and all those guys that were just imposing figures and and who went off to the NFL but who played such an important role in leadership in that locker room. I mean, they ran things for that team last year. And I'm talking with Jonathan Allen, who's a, a quieter guy, you know, who's not super demonstrative, it seems, just in his day-to-day operations. And he said to me on that first day of fall camp, he said, you know, we don't know who the alpha dogs are yet. This is when we figure that out. And my first reaction was, oh, man, if they don't know who the alpha dogs are, At this point, you know, when they've had the summer to do seven on seven work and hang out and whatnot, like if they don't already know who's going to be in those important leadership roles, then man, this this team might have a harder time than anybody realizes being dominant at any level. And I was completely wrong. I was completely wrong because clearly they figure that out and it's it's pay dividends for him. But I truthfully haven't been around them since then. I've just watched, I've watched from afar and I'm so impressed with what they've done. And I think a big key of it, going back to that defensive line, you know, I, I was thinking that the departure of Bo Davis last year's defensive line coach would, would really be noticed. But when you bring in Carl Dunbar, who's another Nick Saban disciple, he and Bo are so similar in their knowledge of the game and their expertise but the group hasn't lost a step if anything they've gotten better and it's led to 
that number one ranking that we now see and that everyone's expected. Kaylee, you've done a bunch of these all-access pieces where I feel like you've been in the car riding to work for half the coaches <laughs> in the SEC. What has been your most memorable moment in the passenger seat of one of these car rides? Oh, easily. Less miles. The first time I ever did it. This was in the lead up to the LSU Alabama game in 2013, I believe. And the day started, and this was actually my first assignment for SportsCenter. And the day started with me riding to work with Les Miles. And <laughs> I hop in the car. And of course, being from Baton Rouge, I say to him, you know, I'm just curious to see how you drive to work, what route you take, because coming from where he lives, there are five different ways you could go. And I can only guess that he's not going to go the typical way where you've got to go through the gates of LSU and, and it would take, you know, it probably wouldn't be the most efficient way, but it would be the first way anybody would think to go. So he says, oh, I'll show you something new. I bet you've never been this way before. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. This will be fun. Well, so as soon as we're getting onto the interstate, there's a big curve in the on-ramp and his Escalade starts beeping. And all we've got in the car is a GoPro on the windshield. And there's actually an audio guy like laying down in the way back of the Escalade. So the car starts beeping because he doesn't have, even have his seatbelt on. I'm like, we're on television. And of course, Les Miles didn't even think to put his seatbelt on in that moment. So we're laughing about that. And he solves that problem pretty, pretty easily and quickly, of course. And then we're driving down the interstate and he passes up the exit that I would think you would get off on Acadian. And then he passes the next exit right on top of the LSU lakes that, again, I would think you would, if you didn't take the first one, you take the, that one. Then he gets off an exit I've never taken in my life growing up in Baton Rouge. And we're going through a not the best part of town. And we come to an intersection with a stoplight. And there's no other car in sight. We were never in any danger. But the light is red. He taps on the brake treats it like a stop sign and just goes right through it. <laughs> just It's one of those moments where I'm like, how many cameras do I have on this? Because this is great television. I and I, in that moment, I realized all I've got is this GoPro that's looking at us. So I don't have a shot of the red light. So I just have to call him out. And I look at him like, coach, did you just run a red light? And he goes, uh, no, Kaylee, Kaylee, I... I anticipated the change. <laughs> I remember that piece. I can't believe that was your first Sports Center piece. I, I definitely remember that. It was. How yeah, many, I'll never forget it. Ever. And the second we get out the car in the parking lot of the football operations building, I jump out, run over to my producer, Jonathan Wiley, and I'm like, lead with the red light. He ran a red light because we had about 15 minutes to get it turned around and fed to Bristol and on the air and that. Uh, I knew exactly what this piece was going to look like when it went on air because it was very obvious what needed to make air from the 15-minute drive that would be cut down into two minutes. While you were talking about this and I was visualizing you in the car with the coach, I came up with an idea that's, I mean, frankly, the SEC Network should pay me for this. This is such a good idea. You ready? Yes. Carpool karaoke with SEC coach. I knew that's where you were going. I knew it. I read your mind. That would be fantastic. You know, it's funny you say that. I hosted or had a, a cameo appearance, I should say, in the all sports banquet at the University of Kentucky last year. Maria Taylor and I were invited to present an award and we each did a feature piece for the program. And that was one of the elements woven through the night 
that a, a, a local media personality had done. And the Kentucky basketball team, like five of these huge tall basketball players hop in the car and it was so well done. And I was like, gosh, we need to do this with everybody. This is absolutely fantastic. So knowing the personalities as we do of some of these guys, the first guy I could say, I could see Jim McElwain being into that. Who in the SEC do you think would probably be pretty good at it? Bielema, maybe? Hugh Freeze. Hugh Freeze. Dude loves country music. I think if you put him in the in the seat, he would be more entertaining than anybody would be prepared to handle because that guy loves country music. We were talking about it on the field when I was at Ole Miss last weekend, you know, because there was a bunch of country music playing, and, and I was like, is this your playlist? And he was like, you bet it is. I'm thinking <laughs> like, someone oh, would do great. it. I think the last one to sign on who would have to do it at gunpoint would be Gus Malzahn. Even no doubt. Even though he does have that infamous oh god that, that dancing thing video where he's on the yeah. keyboard oh yeah when he was a high school coach if people don't know what i'm talking about google it um it was uh it it, it was it, that is a strange video not just because he's dancing because he looks so different when he was younger <laughs> so true All right, i hate to turn this on so a serious true. note kaylee but i wanted to ask you about something a few months ago um you know these awful flooding hit louisiana hit baton rouge in particular and you know you were on the front lines covering it as the LSU players helped out with the community and the recovery. And I've been curious ever since what that was like for you, because it had to be so, uh, such a personal story since you are from there. Absolutely. It was one of the most emotionally challenging experiences I've ever had professionally, without a doubt. When I got the first phone call that they wanted to send me down there, I think it was on a, a Tuesday right after the weekend of flooding. And I had this reaction of, wait a minute, you know, I don't work for CNN. This is, this is ESPN. What, what's my role supposed to be? And I had about 24 hours before I could get down there just with another, on another assignment. And I had time to think about how I was going to approach the assignment. And I'm glad that I had that time because what I came to realize as I focused in on the coverage that other news outlets were doing was that I couldn't try to do too much. I had to take it one story at a time. And once I got down there, I realized very quickly, everyone had a story. You know, in people were saying in the town of Denham Springs, which is just next door to Baton Rouge, that if 90% of the folks there were impacted by the flood, 100% of the people there knew someone who was. And with that in mind, I just took it one story at a time. And the first home that I went to was that of Jim Hawthorne, the voice of the Tigers for decades. And his home had taken on 18 inches of water and the floors were ripped up and, and furniture was in the driveway and photos, you know, you were just looking at boxes of ruined personal effects in the driveway. And, and that, and that was so hard to see, but, but plenty of things, obviously if the water's only coming up 18 inches, plenty of things were able to be salvaged and they were able to prepare for that in a way. But that was still, that was so hard to see. Well, then as the day went on in my first day there, the next place I went to was the home of Ben McDonald's mother-in-law, Ben McDonald being a all-American baseball player at LSU, went to play in Major League Baseball and now is an analyst for SEC Network and went to his mother-in-law's home and it had taken on four feet of water. 
and nothing could have been salvaged. And the entire LSU baseball team was there helping her take everything she owns and put it in the front yard and rip up every floor and gut walls. And it was just, and it wasn't just her house. It was every house on the street. It was every house in that neighborhood. And the scope of damage is was so hard to describe to anyone who asks me because it was it was everywhere. It was all around you. And for as much media attention as Katrina got, folks in Baton Rouge and Louisiana really felt like this flood didn't get the national attention that it deserved. And so people didn't realize how widespread the damage was. But by the numbers, more people were impacted by this flood than by Katrina. It, fewer lives were lost, thankfully, but person to person, the number of people affected was just absolutely tremendous. And it was, it was emotional to cover for a lot of reasons, but in the end, I was so proud to be able to share so many of the stories that I did because what came of it was something so special. You saw people helping people, Neighbors, strangers, family members. I mean, the spirit of the people of Louisiana shined through such a dark moment in a wonderfully special way. And recovery is still underway. I mean, my stepfather, he had parts of his business impacted and you know, the insurance money hasn't come through yet. And he doesn't know when they can rebuild or how long it will take to get that money. And that means he has employees who aren't yet back at work. And he's just one business. And there are hundreds, not thousands of others who are dealing with that same thing. And it's going to take a while. But the strength of the people of Louisiana is something I'm very proud of. Yeah, Stu, Kaylee's background, I think, is, is unique for being on the sports side of it because she had started out on some very serious side of it as an at CBS. She was an AP at face, face the nation and really got to be mentored by a TV legend and Bob Schieffer and has worked with some interesting people since she got into sports. She was around our pal Joe Tess a lot. It was SEC network got its momentum and got some, got traction in the, in at, at ESPN, but now you work with Brent, and so it's another legend. <laughs> From one legend to another, I am so yeah. lucky. You are you are fortunate. So, first of all, uh, what is the Brent experience like to be as part of his crew, and what is your favorite Brent story from this year? Oh, that's a great question. So, I will say this: in being as fortunate as I've been to spend time with Bob Schieffer and now with Brent Musburger, I have discovered there is a common trait that they share. And that is curiosity. Those two men have had the longevity and success in their careers because they are both so darn curious about everyone they meet, about the people, about the stories, about the moments. They are both so curious. And I've, I've decided that's the secret to longevity and success in careers, experiencing that with them. But working with Brent now, I mean, it's... You always get a feeling when you're at a sporting event. I'm sure you guys can relate to this of, you know, whether it's the flyover or the balls kicked off or the first whistle blows, whatever it may be, where you're like, yes, 
it's time. This is awesome. Let's go. When you're working with Brent Musburger and you hear in your, in your ear, you're looking live. That's my moment now. Think of anything cooler than Because that. it's like, <laughs> right? I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible when you hear that voice and that line that has become his own. Oh my gosh, that's when I get so excited and have that reaction of, okay, it's go time. Let's, let's do it. And I'll have to say that maybe my favorite Brent story of the season actually came just last weekend. How about this? I could not believe this. In Brent Musburger's legendary career, he had never before called an Ole Miss football game in Oxford, Mississippi until last weekend. So I got to introduce Brent to all that Oxford has to offer. And the entire weekend was an absolute blast. I mean, any trip to Oxford is a good time. But with Brent, it was next level. So Friday night, we took him to City Grocery, which is just the best restaurant in town, owned by John Currents, a James Beard award-winning chef. And Brent was on fire in this place. I mean, everybody wanted to talk to him. And Eli Manning walked in at one point. And people don't bother Eli. Like, oh, it's Eli. No big deal in Oxford. But everyone in that restaurant wanted to talk to Brent. It was so much fun to watch. At one point, he actually led the hottie toddy cheer inside that restaurant. I don't believe there were any Auburn fans uh, who were there to witness that, thankfully. But it was wonderfully entertaining. And then the next day... Oh, things went next level when we brought Brent to the Grove for the first time. Now, he asked me if I could work play by play because he did not want to leave. But thankfully, <laughs> we got him out of the Grove and over to Vaughn Hemingway Stadium and then had a pretty fun game between Ole Miss and Auburn. I thought you were going to say, well, you know, Bob and Brent have something very much in common. Little known fact, Bob loves to gamble. <laughs> <laughs> he actually doesn't. But I've learned, oh, I, I, I'm always curious what kind of action Brent has on the weekend because he'll talk about, you ask him, he'll talk about it. It's so much, it's so much fun to see how the weekend works for him. Bigger foodie, Joe Tess or Jesse? I know Jesse's, Jesse's a big foodie guy too. Oh, well, they're different um, maybe it, de- I don't know. It depends on your foodie definition. You, so Jesse doesn't cook, J- you know, Joe Tess, you get to his house and you get in the, that pizza oven outdoors and you get the mozzarella and the prosciutto and all of that, you know, Joe Tess will make you feel very comfortable at the Tessator home. Jesse is more, a bit more gluttonous than Tess when it comes to the dining scene, you know, because Jesse says he works out so he can eat the way that he wants. And I like, I love dining with both of them. I've been spoiled in that aspect too. Uh, Jesse and I will never turn down dessert, which is always fun, which means we usually end up getting two uh, so we can try as many as possible. But Jesse will walk in a place and order the whole menu. It's so much fun. This has been fun. Kaylee, I hope you can become a regular guest on the Audible. Uh, this has been I would love to. I love listening to the Audible. I do. You guys do such a great job and you have fun guests. I was happy to hear my friend Shannon Spake on with you guys the other day. I miss her terribly. Um, we're having, I'm in Bristol right now for our ESPN's college basketball seminar and it won't be, won't be oh. the same without her, but yeah, but it's fun. I always fun listening to you guys. Well, just know she's probably out like climbing a mountain or doing something extremely <laughs> this with, with both twin under each <laughs> on other. her back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know how she does it. It's incredible. 
So you guys can catch Kaylee on the Kentucky-Georgia game this weekend on SEC Network. You can follow her on Twitter at Kaylee Hartong. I got that right, didn't I? You did. And we really thank you for coming on. Thank you guys so much. All right, thanks, Kaylee. Okay, Stu, I got a question for you. Have you ever lost or thought you lost your phone? How awful was that? Even if you found it in like five minutes, man, if you're like me, your life is on that phone. Well, guess what? Identity thieves know that too. And when your lost phone winds up in the hands of an identity thief, it can be the beginning of a disaster. Financially, emotionally, even physically. That could take years to unwind. That's where you can help yourself get some protection with Identity Guard. With Identity Guard, Stu, you can get protection from a company that's been in the business for over 20 years. One that's helped protect more than 47 million people. Identity Guard continuously monitors millions of transactions and articles and sends you the news, tools, and guidance you need to minimize your risk. Plus, if you were to become a victim of identity theft, Identity Guard's victim recovery specialist will be there to help you through the recovery process. Identity Guard even offers identity theft insurance with coverage up to $1 million. So get the identity theft protection that's right for you. Visit IdentityGuard at IdentityGuard.com backslash podcast. That's IdentityGuard.com backslash podcast. Okay, Stu, you've always been known as a man on the cutting edge of fashion. Everybody in the business talks about how sharp you dress. So this next thing is right up your alley. Cricket is the perfect mix of old-school style and modern design inspired by guys like Nicholas, Palmer, JFK, and Dean. Their super soft, 100% certified organic cotton makes their shirts as comfortable on the 19th hole as they are on the 18th. With a better fit, the shirts aren't too baggy, aren't too skinny. Their removable collar stays help keep the collar looking crisp. No more bacon collar. I know how much you hate that. It's the perfect shirt you can wear on or off the golf course for a great look. For 20% off your first purchase, visit cricketshirts.com backslash audible and enter the promo code audible at checkout. That's C-R-I-Q-U-E-T shirts.com backslash audible for 20% off your first purchase. It's the mailbag from a computer, so not literally a bag, but just mail. All right, Bruce, as always, we like to get to your mailbag questions. You can send them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And right off the bat, he always delivers Jason Gorluski in the mailbag yet again. Bruce and Stewart, by any chance, did Will Muschamp just put a nail in the Tennessee coffin of Butch Jones? I think that's a little too strong to say. I mean, for people who think that all of a sudden now Tennessee's going to pull the plug at, at this point, they, I think they're forgetting that Tennessee doesn't have an athletic director. They have almost no leadership above the head coach at this point. So that kind of uncertainty. I mean, look, this is definitely a, a clunker of a showing when they, and, you know, they've been shaky all year, to be honest. Um, you know, if they go, I guess it's nine and three. I mean, if they lose the Kentucky or Vanderbilt, I think you would see a lot more panic of a fan base that's already panicking. And um, from what I had always heard, and maybe this has changed in the last couple of weeks, 
uh, Big Jim Haslam, who's you know the most powerful guy in the state of Tennessee, has been in Butch Jones's corner. So I don't know if that you know losing a against a really mediocre South Carolina team would shake that up. Yeah, I mean, I think the ideal situation for him is they they turn around, they finish nine and three. Ideally, Florida loses two and you go to the SEC championship game. But if not, he can at least kind of sell them on the strong finish, I guess. And like you said, with the uncertainty in leadership there, there would be reason to not fire him. I think where it could get really awkward is if they are going to really implode here, if they're going to lose to Kentucky, if they're going to finish 7-5 and five and the star running back just transferred. I don't know how you bring him back amidst that because basically the fan base will have uh, completely turned on him and given you no reason to feel confident about next year. Uh, this was the team that was built to win the SEC East and in and in a year that, frankly, the East is even worse than I could have imagined, you you have to think in the future, you know, it's not going to be a situation where Georgia is is really down and uh, South Carolina is completely like everybody's down except for Florida in that division this year. Uh, this one's going to be right up your alley, Bruce. Joel Penning says after love the podcast. After you had Shannon Spake on last week, I paid extra attention to the sideline reporters in Saturday's games. Some coaches can be really forthcoming in the halftime and post-game interviews, like when Kyle Whittingham told Bruce about the Arizona defense. What was that called again? Uh, Disconcerting sig- signals, yes. Yeah. With others, it's obvious there are a million things they'd rather be doing than giving an interview. I remember Bo Pelini once telling Quint Kesnich that his question was dumb. I remember uh, Lloyd Carr doing that to somebody as well. Since usually all the coaches want to offer is, a meaning- is meaningless coach speak, I'm curious your strategy for getting meaningful statements out of coaches? Uh, you know what? One of the best answers I probably have ever gotten in any game setting, and that includes as just being a regular reporter, much less on TV, was for, it was a halftime interview with Bill Snyder, of all people. And uh, it was my first game. They had had a bunch of penalties, and that's uncharacteristic of them. And I think I had asked him, on a, and this is a quick walk and talk. I had extended my hand. Good to see you again, coach. And he just, my hand was just out there and we just kept walking on a scale of, uh, of one to 10, how frustrated are we, or how are you with these penalties after, you know, saying it last week, you know, that he was frustrated. And I forgot what he said. I'm at a 20 or something like that. And just kind of gave a really good short answer. And I think a lot of times you're going for the best answer that you think you can prompt. But, you know, sometimes you want to ask them, okay, what's your message to the team coming? You know, what was your message to the team? Because that's something people want to hear. Um, and I also think you don't want to overthink things too much, you know. And that's I, I feel like a lot of times you know it's got to be a short answer. So you want something that's like, okay. And then just one other thing that I've learned is, especially if it's a team that's down, you know, is there going to be a quarterback change? This past weekend, I interviewed Rich Rod coming out of the tunnel. And the last thing I asked him was, any chance we see Anu Solomon? And he said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, there's always a chance. And he kind of smirked. And sure enough, the second series, Anu Solomon went in the game. So, um, you know, that's the kind of stuff I think you, you want to kind of have going in because those are the things that will help. And also, especially if there's an injury-related thing, because a lot of teams now more and more don't, have a trainer who is available to you to update injuries. And so usually a coach can give you something uh, if you have a good relationship with them. All right, we're going to turn serious for a second here. Jeff Trailer in Baton Rouge. You know, we've, there's been a lot of Baylor headlines in the past week because the school is going on a uh, publicity push. It's hired a PR firm and it's trying to kind of get its side of the story out 
and that was what resulted in the, you know, most notably the Wall Street Journal article that just did not paint Art Briles in a very good light. So after that, uh, just some, give me some context here for this email. After that, you know, I tweeted a couple of times. I don't understand why people are so concerned about what the NCA thinks. You know, why would you? Why would the NCA can barely figure out how to solve this UNC academic thing? And you want them to get involved in something this serious. But anyway, Jeff Trailer from Baton Rouge, dear Stuart, I understand the reluctance to have the NCAA involved in the Baylor sexual assault scandal, but are you okay with Baylor football moving on with business as usual? Business as usual. It appears that the football program covered up sexual misconduct by its players so those players could continue to play and win games. Shouldn't the football program suffer some appropriate consequences? One school pays for housing for a player's family and gets serious sanctions. I'm not sure who he's referring to there, but good example. The other covers up sexual predators on campus and gets nothing. Um, it, it's a good question. And it's a good point. And it's, you know, the part where, and we could go back to the Penn State case. And look, Penn State, you know, to our knowledge, there were no players involved in anything like that. It was all Sandusky and stuff that happened at the higher levels. The part that I thought, okay, well, here's where the NCA has to, you know, may wrestle with it is when you're talking about were these things done to protect the image of a football program because that factors into whether they can recruit or how well they can recruit. And I kind of get that side of it. Um, I'll be honest though. And this relates to Penn state as it relates to the Nevin Shapiro scandal at Miami, because when Penn state happened, and I've said this before and I hold to it, it really put into context what an actual scandal is. Some kids getting free meals or getting lap dances or whatever. Um, you know, I, I find it harder to get outraged about that when I do when there's some serious crimes that go on at a university and and that are funneled a lot of times through an athletic department because they're getting preferential t- treatment because, you know, they, they're they raising the, the profile of the university. They get big stadiums filled. They're doing it all in the interest of keeping our football team, building a, a top 10 program and all those other things. And I think they are all all intertwined. Yeah, and so it's a tough situation because should the football program be sanctioned? Yeah, possibly, but I'm not sure it should be sanctioned by the NCAA for all the reasons you just said. Why? There's no good way for the NCAA to – they just don't have any proper mechanisms for that right now. You know, it takes them years to process – I mean, how many – it took four years to process that USC case that involved one star player – getting um, money from an agent. Uh, you know, UNC, academics, that should be cut and dry, still going. Um, I just don't know how you would even, how they would, now maybe the Big 12 should be getting involved. Maybe the Big 12 should be fining the Baylor program. Maybe the Big 12 should be punishing them in some way. I don't know. But, you know, end of day, the winningest, not winningest, most successful coach in modern history of Baylor football got fired. Uh Player recruits left, players transferred. Um, the program has suffered terrible. Uh, you know, its reputation is suffering terribly. I don't feel like it just skated. You know, and I don't. You know, is it business as usual? Um, I guess people are getting that. And in fact, I think one reason people are so ticked off is that all the assistants are still there, and they feel like that's. You know, if you've got a report saying that the coaching staff interfered with sexual assault investigations, how can the staff? still be there well there are some guys who did lose their jobs some a couple people lost their jobs the rest of them are going to lose their jobs in december 
So that doesn't upset me as much. I just don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. I just know that after what happened with Penn State, where the NCAA tried to quantify sexual abuse, child abuse in vacated wins and bowl bans, and it just felt so wrong. I don't know what you would do here. I don't know that you would, because then you know what would happen. Let's say they gave him a two-year bowl ban. USC fans who have been, every time a new thing comes out, they complain about how bad they had it. They're getting the same thing for uh, for right. you know, covering up rapes that we got for Reggie Bush. It's a it's a losing proposition, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it is a it's a very flawed system. Ultimately, let me ask you this question though: What I only saw about half of the 60 Minutes piece. I did read um, I did read about it. Some of the reports about it. I also saw uh, Mark Schlebaugh had done another piece about uh, former AD Ian McCaw and how he wanted football players to receive immunity. I would think that's regarding to whether they were involved in other you know, cases against their teammates. And that was a little unclear to me in that story. Do you feel any differently about Baylor? Like this, that story, the Wall Street Journal story actually broke on Friday afternoon when I was in our coach meetings at Arizona. So I was very late to, to reading about it. And, and by that point, I wasn't sure how big of a story that was going to, to, to kind of blow up and then blow up to. And I feel like there's a lot of threads that are co- kind of going here. There's the Patty Crawford side there is Baylor did their, you know, their, their kind of fact check on the 60 minutes piece they put out this morning. I read through that. I mean, there's a lot of finger pointing going on, you know, around the Baylor community. And it's, it's, it's a very complicated story now. It is because, you know, you mentioned the 60, when you say 60 minutes, there's a Showtime version of 60 minutes that did uh, a feature on this Tuesday and it got completely lost in the shuffle. It was up against the World Series I don't think most people realize Showtime has a 60 minutes sports type show. So in that one, yeah, football was the impetus for it, but it really was more about the university wide handling of these things. There was some, there were, I mean, there were some incriminating things in there about a coach of one of the other sports who tried to, you know, who had women coming to her saying they'd been raped by football players was basically told to stay in her lane. Um, you know, you had that Patty Crawford, that former Title IX officer, say that she was denied access to police reports. But the further it gets from football and into more broader university issues, and believe me, this thing was a, definitely a university-wide issue, the less the public cares. I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, it's, it's Art Bryles that generates the headlines in this thing. When it gets into Title IX coordinators and um, there was another administrator who was uh, interviewed heavily in this, then it's harder for, I think, the public at large to get to, um, to to follow it too closely. Yeah, by the way, so Baylor had put out today something, literally, the, the it's a Baylor.edu backslash the truth. And uh, one, of the, one of the pieces in it is fact-checking report for 60 Minutes. And one of the first lines in there is, Baylor is unaware of a single person who has verified Patty Crawford's false and misleading claims. I mean, it goes through, like, kind of point by point, um, really calling into question Patty Crawford. And so, again, you have a lot of finger pointing that seems to be swirling around this. You're right. They launched a site this week. They're working with a PR firm. They've strategically planted some Board of Regents members in the press to talk, uh, to give their side of it. But it, it all seems to have to do with when Patty Crawford, who was the Title IX coordinator, she wasn't there the whole time. I think she was there about two years. They didn't have a Title IX coordinator before. When she abruptly quit and then went on that morning show 
and I said they had set her up to fail. That's when this all started. They are trying to recapture the narrative from her. Uh, it's ugly. There, there's no way around it. It's ugly. And just from a football standpoint, I think it's going to affect their ability to get you know the kind of coach they want to get in this next coaching search because much like when a coach walks into a scandal, a program that's been through scandal in another place, these stories aren't going away as soon as Art Bryle's successor is named. There are lawsuits pending. Uh, there are going to continue to be these investigative-type stories. You're walking into a mess. Yeah. My gut is right now, if I had to handicap, I think there would be three or four guys who would be in consideration for this job. Larry Fedora, who I've mentioned you know, before, I think if Sonny Dykes, you know, Sonny Dykes has interviewed with Mac Rhodes before, who's the AD there. Uh, would not at all surprise me. I know that there's some interest in Chad Morris, who's now starting to get things going at SMU, and maybe a wild card in there could be less miles. So, you know, we'll see. Okay, a couple more random things here. Derek, in regards to the Pac-12 network, I travel all over the West Coast. I never found the Pac-12 network at any hotels I stay at. I stayed at a hotel in Grants Pass, Oregon, which is southwest Oregon, 100 miles from California, and the hotel had BTN, and not Pac-12. Ouch. Wow. That's kind of sad, I think. Yeah, the power of Jim Delaney right there. All right, this one's directed to me. We've talked a lot about sandwich places on here recently. DA, he says, I need to ask for more assignments in the East Bay, maybe Warriors assignments, or ask to cover an East Bay high school player story like Najee Diggs because Concord, California has a Jimmy John's location less than a mile from De La Salle High School. That is, uh, I did not realize that. I did not realize Jimmy John's had a West Coast presence at all. Hmm. Well, there you have it, Still Broadening your horizons. Last thing, do you remember we had a question, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, from Bobby in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, because you asked me if I knew what was in Williamsport. Bobby is, is ticked off. At us? I think so. This is truly making me sick. First, we had this allegedly spectacular play where LSU's Leonard Fournette trucked an Ole Miss DB. I watched the play. The only thing amazing about it was that Fournette didn't lose his balance and face plant. That DB went way too low early in the attempt. What was he supposed to do to stop him? Yet it got all this press. And now we have Louisville's star quarterback who, according to a Fox Sports article headline, somehow had a Heisman moment by throwing a last-minute DD pass and not losing to 2-6 and six Virginia. Have you all lost your minds? Sounds like a bit of a broadcast news situation here. Well, is Bobby saying that because they barely beat a bad Virginian team on the road that he should be out of the Heisman race or not in the lead? Is that No, I think he's saying, and I heard this too that day, that we shouldn't be celebrating it. giving him all this credit and celebrating this last minute touchdown pass because it was against Virginia. And I said, he's not gonna win the Heisman because he threw a touchdown pass against Virginia, but on top of everything else he's already done. I'm sorry, but a 29-yard game-winning touchdown pass is a really cool moment. How much do you factor in, you know, we all kind of approach Twitter, especially on game days, a little differently. I mean, I don't want to give play-by-play. Nobody wants to see that. But I do feel a little bit of an obligation if I say upset alert or something along the lines of, oh, Lamar Jackson just threw a bad pick. They're down by 10 at Virginia to come back and kind of finish the gaps, even if people are going to see it, you know, because I happen to be watching that game. I'm not sure how many people were watching that game uh, last week, just to kind of tie it back to kind of, okay. Cause all of a sudden when you say he's struggling, 
all these fans, especially non-Louisville fans, are going, he sucked anyway, or he wasn't that good. You guys handed him the Heisman in September. I was like, uh, no, I didn't. And I don't know a lot of people who did, but because I think all, all people pointed out, Geno Smith didn't win the Heisman. Leonard Fournette didn't win the Heisman. All the, you know, Denard Robinson didn't win. All the people, you know, we've kind of been through that dance. So people have kind of said, okay, he's in the lead. That doesn't mean you've handed him the Heisman. And I think that all kind of goes together, maybe. I saw a great comment. This wasn't specific to sports by any means. In the New York Times, you know, it was talking about Twitter and how Twitter has become where all the news people, you know, are, are on there 24-7. And he said, the, the analogy he used, you know, the expression, journalism is the first draft of history. Twitter is the first draft of journalism. And so what you're seeing is you're seeing in real time, right? If you were writing a game story about that Louisville game on deadline, you would have started writing your Lamar Jackson loses the Heisman story, and then you would have had to change it at the end. And I feel like there's a lot of that on Twitter where you, somebody says, uh-oh, somebody's losing, and then that team ends up winning by three touchdowns. Or, oh, man, somebody's really struggling today, and that guy ends up throwing the game-winning touchdown. And then you get laughed at for it. So... You know, you could try to be careful and not ever prematurely declare anything on there. But, you know, that's not its purpose. It is real time. And I feel on Saturdays, especially the Saturdays when I'm either at home or in L.A. and watching all of the games. I mean, I've heard this feedback. A lot of our followers are at their favorite team's game and not able to watch the other games or, you know, tied up with something and they're not able to watch any college football. And they're relying on us to tell them everything that's going on. So, you know, I think... At one point in that game, he was struggling, and he was in danger of losing the Heisman, and then he threw the game-winning touchdown pass, and I think it's okay to point out both. Yeah, and I think it is Twitter is a shared experience, and I know from when I'm at games myself, and I have no access to anything other than Twitter is the easiest thing for me to scroll through, and I'm trying to find out what happened and what a status is in the game, I definitely want to see that stuff of what's going on. Now, I may not want to see it if I'm on the computer like everybody else is and be like, oh, I don't need running play-by-play. -play. But you know what? It's the kind of thing where I'm like, oh, I'm not going to get too worked up about it. You know, I'd like to have it. it. It can be a resource or sometimes it can be, a, you know, kind of a nuisance. But, you know, I think we're all grown up enough not to, to get too worked up about it. Bobby from Williamsport, Pennsylvania. I'm just going to assume you were having a bad day when you sent that. Bobby, we still want you in our podcast family. So please do not get ticked off at us for celebrating a little too much on, on Lamar Jackson's moment. As always, you can email us at theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And of course, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to The Audible on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review while you're at it, a five-star review. It helps get the word out. We'll see you next time.